This is a Federal News Network podcast. More changes are coming in the next few months for security on at least two major fronts. First and foremost, something that's been in nearly constant flux for years, namely federal security clearance background investigations. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, there's a council, a committee, one of many going on in the federal government right now that's advising agencies on this, and they met. Let's start with who they are and what they're trying to do here. The National Industrial Security Program Policy Advisory Committee, say that five times fast, they met yesterday. They were discussing a range of issues related to how the government oversees background investigations and security issues. And one of the major things that was discussed are forthcoming guidelines on how the government bets people. And it's it's on, all under this Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative that folks may have heard of that's really reforming the background investigation and security clearance processes. Now, these new guidelines are going to be based on a federal personnel vetting core doctrine that was published earlier this year in January in the waning days of the Trump administration. Well, the Biden administration is picking that up and they're sending these new guidelines out to agencies to essentially tell them how they're going to vet their personnel in the future for sensitive positions. That could be folks with a confidential clearance all the way to those with a top secret clearance. And one of the major things that this new doctrine stresses is the need to use uniform vetting processes across agencies and also the need to share information about individuals across agencies. One of the major outcomes that's listed in this doctrine and that we're expecting to see more about in these guidelines is reciprocity, the ability for someone with a security clearance to walk out of government and into an industry position with the same clearance and not have to go through that process all over again. There's another reciprocity issue, and that is if you walk out of one agency and across the street to another agency, is that part of this new guideline or doctrine also? Exactly. The key word in the doctrine is mobility. And essentially, it says that mobility is enabled by allowing for these transfers of trust determinations across departments and agencies, and then to industry as well. And it essentially makes it easier for agencies and, and for companies to hire people for these sensitive positions. These new guidelines are expected to come out. They're under review by the Director of National Intelligence and, and the Office of Personnel Management, which are the two organizations that kind of oversee this process. And those two organizations are also reviewing new investigative standards that essentially consolidate five standards into just three. So essentially what you're seeing is, is, is sort of a goal to simplify and make this process more easy to understand for agencies and industry alike. Now, there is an apparatus in the Defense Department. It does the background investigation. So this committee advises the ODNI. How does this all get translated into the way that this apparatus actually operates? Well, the committee involves DOD representatives, representatives from agencies and, and industry, notably. And twice a year, they go over different policies, different operations that are ongoing when it comes to security clearances and background investigations. And another big issue that, of course, everyone is tracking is clearance processing timelines. Uh, so they, they discussed that yesterday as well. You know, there was this huge backlog, of course, a few years ago that sent clearance processing timelines skyrocketing. Well, that backlog is pretty much whittled down to where they want it to be. And we've seen clearance processing timelines go down as a result. So if people can be hired faster. During the fourth quarter of fiscal year 2021, the fastest 90% of secret clearance investigations took an average of 112 days from from initiation, sending in an application to finally adjudicating that application, saying, 
yes or no. For top secret clearances, the fastest 90% took 181 days on average. That's a lot faster than it was just a year ago. Uh, A couple of years ago, those numbers I just cited were actually double on average. It was taking over a year for a lot of people applying for top secret clearances to just to get a decision. But the government is still not meeting the goals. The the goal for investigating an initial secret level application is 60 days. And for top secret, it's 100 days. So while we're seeing faster timelines, the government isn't quite there yet. The good news is the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, that, that entity you mentioned earlier, they're sitting at below their steady state of cases. So they're not seeing the backlog spike at all. It's at 176,000 cases. That's well below the, the 200,000 active cases that they say is necessary to keep those timelines going down. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And just getting back to the committee and the guidance, just to be clear, there is new guidance from the Biden administration. Is there any fundamental change that they're proposing possibly here from the Trump administration? On the background investigations and security clearances, it's actually a a continuation of the Trump administration policy. Trusted Workforce 2.0 it kind of sprang out of that huge backlog that I mentioned earlier where they needed to dig themselves out of this hole and it turned into this reform effort. And you're not seeing any changes in, in policy and, and, and certainly not in language. They're still using the trusted workforce moniker here under the Biden administration. So then the guidelines themselves are what's new, the fact of them being issued and kind of solidifying all of these types of thinking that's been going on for a couple of years now. Exactly. It's carrying forward this trusted workforce 2.0 sort of doctrine that I mentioned that hasn't actually yet come into practice fully. And I think what agencies are hoping for is just a simplified process here that we've been discussing for for quite some time now under the trusted workforce 2.0 moniker. All right. And the continuous vetting, that's still part of it, right? Exactly. Uh, Earlier this month, DCSA announced that all 3.6 million DOD clearance holders are in continuous vetting. That's part of what's allowing these case logs to go down because instead of having to reinvestigate every person with a security clearance, you're just putting them into this continuous vetting program where you're pulling on automated records checks and other other sources of information to make sure no one's up to anything that could point to something nefarious instead of sending a, an investigator to reinvestigate them every five or 10 years. And those folks can in, instead focus on the initial investigations of, of new applicants to, to government and industry positions. All right. And also that committee dealt with the guidance that affects how contractors are going to have to protect sensitive government data on their own systems. And that's been a lot of debate, too, for the past several years. What did the committees say about that? What was discussed was how this new uh, rule is coming out in federal acquisition regulation on controlled unclassified information. There's a lot of classified information out there. Controlled unclassified information is unclassified, but still sensitive information that the government has to protect in one way or another. And there are actually more than 120 categories of controlled unclassified information across government. Industry has been complaining for a while now that it's too complicated. There's too many different rules and regulations uh, dictating how they have to protect this information. So the National Records and Archives Administration is going to be contributing to this new rule that's coming out in November that dictates how agencies will handle this information. And that'll flow down to industry. And so what NARA representatives said at this meeting is essentially they're going to try to make this as streamlined 
and as easy as possible for government and industry. But we'll have to wait and see what's in that rule that comes out next month. All right. I guess they've got more classifications than Penzi Spices has types of salt. And the committee was also dealing with a recent GAO ruling that had to do with a joint venture among a couple of vendors that did not have a facility clearance. And what can we learn there? NARA, the the entity I just mentioned, is also planning to issue a new rule concerning requirements for joint ventures and and facility clearances. Uh, In August, GAO ruled that it actually wasn't right for the Air Force to require a joint venture on its own to have a facility clearance at the time it submits a proposal, so long as the companies involved in the joint venture each have the requisite clearance. Now, it was a big ruling at the time for small business advocates who say that these requirements, past requirements for joint ventures themselves to have facility clearances have kind of made it harder for small businesses to team up and compete for sensitive contracts. Last year, Small Business Administration actually changed its rules so joint ventures wouldn't need to get facility clearances on their own so long as the companies involved each had one. But after this GAO ruling, it's caused some confusion around how different agencies like DOD could go about actually implementing these requirements. Greg Pannoni from the Information Security Oversight Office at NARA said that the SBA rules actually conflicts with national industrial security requirements, and they're going to be issuing a new rule that kind of updates people on how this these regulations should be interpreted. So the GAO ruling is certainly not the last chapter in the story on joint ventures and and facility clearances. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you've mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, 
it's uh, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot, both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.